I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You, and we're Get Well magazine in the UK. And uh, welcome to yet another podcast and vlogcast. And before we start, um, we've been researching medicine and health for, uh, what, 30 years? And we keep coming up with so many interesting, innovative things, way outside the conventional paradigm of drugs and what have you. And these things are working. And they've worked for thousands and thousands of people, especially for those with chronic health problems. And it occurred to us, well, it's all very well just doing this. Why don't we make more of a showcase of this? And so we have. We've launched the Get Well Show. And that's all happening at London's Olympia from February the 21st to the 23rd. And we'd love you to come along where you're here and see many great speakers, great doctors, pioneers who are doing amazing stuff so many different chronic conditions. It's an absolute must to attend, whether you yourself have a chronic health problem or you know somebody or does. And you can pre-book your tickets, which is a far wiser thing to do, by going to getwell.solutions forward slash show. Why is it wiser? Well, because on the day, the price of the ticket is going to be £25. A lot of money. Well, yes, but you're going to see something like 20 or 30 different speakers, 80, 90 different stands. But here's the thing. If you pre-book, you can get it for something like, I think, £16 at the moment. So big saving. So if you are planning to come, well, buy your tickets now. And we'll, Lynn and, of course, and myself will be there. We'd love to see you and chat to you. So we hope to welcome you to the Get Well Show, February 21st, 23rd, London's Olympia. And also, mm. um, just to understand, besides saving money, Brian, you're going to save yourself time because mm. there's going to be probably a pretty good-sized queue, mm. uh, queuing up for, for tickets. And aside from, there actually are 51 people demonstrating or speaking in total, mm. and they include some of the top... Th therapists in the UK and <laughs> elsewhere, um, looking at innovative ways to treat arthritis, autoimmune diseases, um, gut issues, musculoskeletal, and all kinds of chronic illnesses, as well as mental illness. And the big question, of course, we're asking is whether it really is mental illness or whether it's just biochemical in your body and can be fixed with supplements or just detoxing. So there are loads of different innovative people you get a chance to meet and talk with and get some personal advice from. So if you have any kind of condition, definitely head on over to our show. You won't be sorry. It's one of a kind. Okay. Right. Thanks for that, Lynn. And we're moving on to some news. Um, now, about losing weight. Now, what do you do? If you only had to choose one thing to lose weight, what would you do? Well, would you uh, would you modify your diet or would you exercise? Well, most people or most uh, programs actually talk about uh, exercising and calorie reduction. And um, that's pretty much the standard view still in, for many uh, diet clubs and what have you. You reduce the diet, exercise, burn those calories, you'll lose weight is still the prevailing wisdom. But it's 40 and there's been a major study and a very interesting one 
carried out by Baylor University amongst some children living in the Amazonian rainforest of all places. And the reason why they've uh, investigated so far afield from their home is because these children are very unusual because they are still foraging and doing agrarian work. And their average energy expenditure is like 25% greater than it is for kids in the West. And yet, they are no slimmer. And um, they said, well, why should that be? Because if that theory is right, then they should be a lot slimmer. Well, the reason why, and it's very interesting, the body's pretty smart, and it's never a straight-line conversion of calories being burned according to activity. There's a point where the body will stop burning calories because it will retain them and says, well, I need that for some other function. And as a result, you can't, as they say, outrun a bad diet. And the truth of the matter is by far the more important thing to do is to eat well, to uh, uh, eat healthy foods, don't eat processed foods, and that on its own would have much more to do with weight loss than all the activity in the world, because the body itself stops burning it. And uh, this really is quite important. They say, look, obviously exercise is important, but lots of other things for your cardiovascular health, for musculoskeletal health, but really for losing weight, forget it. I'm not surprised, Brian. Mm. I mean, people have to understand the whole calorie theory of how our body uses energy was actually put together by someone who was looking at steam engines mm. and comparing sort of the use of of steam and this this machine mm. and how it used up energy and just used a kind of analog analogous situation for calorie burning. So it that theory believes a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. So no matter where your food comes from, if it has X number of calories and you need Y and X is larger than Y, you're going to put on weight. So that's the theory, but it's so simplistic. It doesn't understand how the body uses food and how it uses food and consumes food in different parts. Mm. And that carbs are dealt with in one way and protein another way. And so it's not at all the amount of food in terms of calories that determines whether you put on weight or lose weight. It's about the kind of food you, you eat and what the body's going to do with it. And we all know that the food that gets stored are carbs. So if you have too much, too many um, processed carbs, too many high glycemic carbs, carbs that turn into sugar very quickly, that will get stored as fat for any amount that your body doesn't need. Whereas you can eat five times the calories in protein and fats and um, and vegetables, and you won't put on the same amount of weight. Yeah. In fact, uh, you probably won't put and, on And weight. the other problem is you, you don't burn it either. I mean, as I say, the, 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 the real point of this Baylor study was that it didn't matter how much activity these uh, Amazonian kids did, they just weren't burning any further fat. It was just being retained um, because the body stops that process after a while. After quite, I mean, I don't know how many people who go to a gym and see everyone sweating like crazy on some sort of exercise bike or whatever, 
And you see them week after week, and they never seem to lose weight. I mean, it's a real common thing to see. I don't know if other listeners, viewers would share that if you do go to a gym. It is quite noticeable that these people are not losing any weight. And it is like the body shuts down and won't allow that to happen. And I think that's that's really interesting. And I think it's a very good, quite an insightful study by the Baylor people uh, to look into this and just say it really isn't that simplistic. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Lynn. Now, assuming we're hale and hearty, I suppose it's fair to say most of us would want to live for as long as possible. I mean, it's perverse not to, I suppose. And the idea now that, you know, we could live to 100 is, is you know, increasingly possible, it seems. And I suppose, you know, the old 80 is today's 100 in a way. And I think we are seeing in quite short periods of time this longevity thing moving quite quickly. So 100 is now not so unusual. But What's the single biggest factor that will stop you getting to 100? Well, some researchers at the George Washington University have had a look at that. And they think that the one biggest, the single biggest factor is eating processed food. And uh, it's for lots of reasons we know anyway that processed food has all sorts of problems with our uh, biophysical makeup is it triggers uh, diabetes, heart problems, and and so forth. Which, of course, on its own seems to cut years off your life, and that certainly is true. But it seems to also have um, profound effects on key biological process, which include our gut microbiome, you know, the universe of bacteria, and blood glucose levels, and these are all key to living a long and healthy life. And Eating processed foods on a regular basis, as so many, especially in the States, but everywhere, do, is having a, a big effect. And they, they looked at um, the average folks in the States and compared them with uh, older people in what is called the blue zones, which are these special areas of the world where people regularly live to 100 and older. And this is the stark difference in the two lifestyles the, the, the average people in the West were eating quite a lot of processed foods and included potato chips, sugar-sweetened drinks, sweets, refined grains and processed meat compared to those in blue zones who were eating little or none of those foods. And um, it seems that um, they, they took away the idea that really of everything that we do the diet, and in particular a bad diet, had far more impact on longevity than anything else in, uh, that we do. And that so instead of processed foods, they recommend eating whole vegetables, legumes, nuts, fruit, and plenty of water, they say. What do you think, Lynn? Does that sort of make sense, doesn't well, it? Well, it does, because we know that the genesis of so many of these degenerative diseases mm. is sugar. Mm. You know, they're mm. now starting to say that heart disease isn't so much about blockages as mm. inflammation. Mm. We know that many of the other ones, so diabetes, yeah. etc., Alzheimer's, are about inflammation. Yeah. And we also know that sugar is a big source of inflammation. Yeah. Um, there are other factors, there can be other factors, but bad <clears throat> diet, you know, is is one of the chief ones. And all that sugar 
which causes all kinds of problems in the body, mm. is comes from the white stuff, processed mm. foods. Mm. So if you look at um, charts of diseases and their genesis, I mean, it's extraordinary to think that cancer was hardly, really not well known, mm. say around the turn of the century. Heart disease wasn't as well known mm. around the turn no. of the century. There were other things. People died from infectious diseases, yep. but these degenerative diseases weren't so popular That's and true. they really, their rise mirrors yep. the rise of processed foods. Yeah. Yep. So it all makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and um, that started to happen round about, you know, with this sort of flourishing of the industrial age, where uh, by 1860, 1870, people were moving to urban environments and we were seeing loads more processed foods starting to appear um, to feed the growing population. I mean, this then accelerated in the 20s and 30s as industrial processes became more sophisticated and were able to produce this food in greater quantity. But, uh, you know, it did start by 1870. It was the first time when when bread was not made to the original ways. And it's very interesting because you said that. I mean, we've done a comparison with the diet in 1860. And, you know, as you rightly say, none of these degenerative diseases were hardly around at all. I mean, they, they did exist, of course. People did die of cancer and they did die of heart problems. But it wasn't the epidemic by any means that it, it is today. No. Um, but as you say, they weren't living it much longer, if at all, because of the the uh, the, the, you know, the viral problems that were spread as well. And that was down to poor hygiene, sanitation, all those things. But whilst on the subject of longevity, Lynn, I mean, it is a fascinating topic. And we're seeing, as I said earlier, that the people are living to 100. It's not so unusual now. It's not an impossible ambition to have. And uh, now people are starting to stretch this to 120. Well, and it's starting to see that happen. Uh, we're starting to see people living as, as certainly into the into their early you know hundreds. And now now saying, well, the next ambition beyond that is 120. But it stretches further. This is what's interesting that um, researchers from a Mount Desert Island biological laboratory reckon that in theory, at least, human beings could live to 500. Hmm. And they've been doing some experiments with worms, which apparently are always used for anti-aging experiments, and discover there is two cellular pathways that determine how long we will live. And it's not anything to do with genes, because for years and years, research has been looking for the aging gene that determines how long we live. And they said, you're barking up the wrong tree. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with these cellular pathways, which are known as IIS, which is insulin signaling, insulin signaling pathway and TOR, TOR. And these combined have an incredible effect. When they work synergistically, they have a magnifying effect. And that's what amazed the researchers. So not, it wasn't that they, you know, they, they estimate that on that basis, just working with worms, that it wasn't a case of, oh, you'd live for another 10, 15, 20 years. No, it was an explosion of potential that they people could live as long as 500 if we just get this working properly, which, not surprisingly, is their next big project. So it's an extraordinary thought that could it really be possible 
that human beings could live as long as that. I mean, we just looked at, well, if you eat a decent diet, you're going to be maybe hit a, a hundred, but 500. I mean, the thing is, we don't really know, well, how great, but how do we actually activate these pathways to create this synergistic effect where we would actually live that long? Indeed, I suppose the question also is, did you want to? <laughs> Depends on the state of my teeth, Brian, I think, <laughs> and just about everything else. But one of the interesting things about this, when you think about longevity, you know, we've talked a lot about mm. diet on this podcast, mm. and that's a real key element. Mm. And we've talked a bit about exercise, and while that might not help you lose weight, that's certainly key to keeping a lot of aerobic capacity and your muscles intact and your bones mm. strong, et cetera, et cetera. But another thing that people have to recognize too is a big chief cause of early mortality is medicine, mm. is, com is uh, conventional drugs. Now, there are reasons why drugs are, are life-saving and can be really fantastic, and mm. I don't want to demean that. But so many drugs taken for chronic conditions mm. have untoward and very serious side effects. Mm. And they certainly see in the older people, when they're on a cocktail of drugs, that's a big reason for the onset of Alzheimer's and mm. dementia and so many other conditions that aren't linked to the drug, that don't get linked to the drug, but uh, the drug is causing it. So probably if, when you start looking at those blue zones, although they have different diets, very radically different diets, they have a couple of factors in common. And one of them is um, unprocessed food, mm -hmm. you know, fresh food, mm -hmm. fresh local food. Um, they do that um, really well. But this, and of course, a lot of activity, you know, some of them, some of those goat herders in Sardinia are mm. still doing that yeah, at yeah. 90. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is close community ties. Mm. You know, this is something close to my own heart because I've seen the power, transformational power of small community. Mm. And community is a real protector against disease. Um, having close family ties, mm. uh, belonging somewhere um, protects us from heart attack, stroke, even the common cold. Yeah. So if you want to live to 100, you know, <laughs> or 500, <laughs> you know, do a few of those things of yeah. not, no proce not yeah. processed food, exercise, <laughs> close community, watch out for drugs, and stay curious. Mm. That's very good. And, and the, the, Japan is the home of most uh, of the world's centenarians. Mm-hmm. And um, researchers did special study into this, into Japan and why that is. And um, they came up with five golden rules for a long and healthy life. And you mentioned most of those things, Lynn. I mean, diet certainly played a part, but it's only one-fifth of the part. It's just 20% of the issue. And it was these other aspects, which, of course, these researchers never really talk about, which do include community, so important. But it's also having this... Um, spiritual aspect for want of a better term where you know you're serving something bigger and better than yourself that's important you know and a need to i suppose be of service and uh, the importance of say having a point to your life 
that you know i there's a reason why i get up every day and you need that you know i do it because i'm you know it could be because i'm helping other people people depend on me what i'm doing is worthwhile it's helping other people there's a point in my life and that is a big big driver of this and it was one of the five golden keys to longevity which you know, unfortunately medical researchers never really look at but these other researchers felt was incredibly important absolutely essential yeah. Well, they're already calling it an epidemic of autism, whereas it's affecting around about uh, one in every 42 boys. But there's a possibility it's even more prevalent than that because uh, researchers have discovered that 25% of cases of autism never get diagnosed. If true, that means it's affecting about one in 30 boys. Um, Researchers from Rutgers uh, University in New Jersey uh, did a fresh analysis of about 266,000 children who are up to the age of eight and discovered that those who had been uh, about 4,500 had been diagnosed as having autistic symptoms. But 25% of those had never been diagnosed. So these people were going on not realising or that they were autistic. And... Um, that they had all the symptoms of autism. And they said, well, why is this? Well, mainly these cases are amongst Hispanic and African-American children. And the um, researchers think it could be to do with language problems or communication or even cultural barriers. And they think that also it could be down to stigma, that some parents feel their children aren't quite developing as they should, but don't want to do anything about it. But if all that is true, then autism is a far more prevalent problem than even we thought. And, um, you know, we don't quite know what's going on here. Um, There have been lots of theories, and uh, I'm sure most of our listeners would have heard of most of them. But, um, you know, I don't know, Lynn, it's it's, it's a massive problem, isn't it? That it's this developmental problem affecting so many children, especially boys. Mm-hmm. from about the age of three or four. And it could be now one in 30 boys being affected by autism. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I think what's really shocking is that they always say, well, this this epidemic of autism, mm. as recognized, of the numbers that are recognized and are diagnosed, um, is so large only because we didn't diagnose before. Right. But now we find out that a big chunk of children are still not being diagnosed mm. as mm. having autism, so the epidemic is even larger yeah. than they suspected. The other thing that really is, I think, um, counterproductive and possibly dangerous mm. is the idea that, um, well, this is how people just turn out. Um, there were not autism cases of this magnitude when I was growing up and you were growing up in the U.S. and U.K. I did not know one student in all of my junior high or high school, and that's the entire town in New Jersey where I grew up, of anybody who Mm. had autism. Now, maybe there were one or two that possibly were somewhere on mm. the spectrum, but you didn't have certainly one in 30. 
No. I mean, that would have been no. a couple of kids per class. Per class, or, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, we didn't have stats like that. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and I'm thinking my, my high school graduating class was 750 mm. children, and mm. I can't think of one who was autistic. Mm. So something has happened between then and mm -hmm. now. And if we don't ask the questions... Mm. which we have to do. What is it we are doing in our environment mm. or mothers are doing when they're carrying these children? What's happening where we have created the situation? It's not that we're finding it. We know better about how to diagnose it. Mm. We have to admit this is a situation we didn't see before. Mm. Just as we were talking earlier about heart disease being rare or cancer being rare, something changed. Mm. Our diet changed mm. in the main. Mm. So now what's changing mm. that's creating this epidemic? Mm. If we don't ask the question, we're not going to sort it out, and we're going to do all of those children and more future children a huge disservice absolutely and it is a spectrum disorder isn't it and i think at the mild end some people say well that's fine it's uh, they seem to be happy to live with it they feel it characterizes them in some way and i suppose they're you know welcome to that opinion but there are people f much further along the spectrum and we know some of them where mm. their parents lives have been made an utter misery mm. through this severe disability Mm. And I think equally it's a disservice to those and to their parents not to be asking these questions. And, um, you know, we find it extraordinary that there should be such a school of thought that would even try to fight that and not seek answers. And because it's just not right for the children, it can't be right for the parents. And, you mm. know, I just don't understand that, that attitude Mm. where we shouldn't seek answers no. by, by claiming that there aren't answers. Well, <laughs> there won't be answers if you don't seek, the question. Seek, <laughs> the, seek them out. And, you know, just looking at it, there are answers. There are things that can be done. And I think that parents, particularly with children whose um, autism is more severe, would love to hear these answers, would love to explore, find out, so that their lives and their children's lives can be made better. Absolutely. Well, look, I think we've probably come to the end, you know, because we've run out of our usual allotted time. And I'm sure the patience of our readers and listeners and viewers is wearing very thin. <laughs> so we ought to call a halt there. So thank you for listening or watching. I'm Brian Hubbard and hope to catch up with you again soon. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we hope to see you at the show, too. Absolutely. Get well show, 21st, 23rd of February, London Olympia. Thanks. <laughs>